Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. Before I get started on the message, I've got three things I want to tell you real quick this morning. First is this, if it's your first time joining us today, I want you to know we've been expecting you. We've been preparing for you this morning. That we're, We want you to feel at home here. And so if you're here this morning and you've got infants or you're nursing a child or toddlers and you're, young children, you're not ready to put in our extremely safe, engaging, and fun kids ministry yet, um, just downstairs in one of our classrooms, we prepared a space for you. Uh, we have a family viewing room down there uh, where you can watch the service live as it's happening right now. There's a little bit of, there's some toys, there's some rocking chairs, it's quiet, and it's a safe place if you need to nurse or um, take your children downstairs. And so I wanted to let you know that that's a resource we have available for you because we care about you. Second is this, students, tonight we're launching your student ministry, okay? Listen, this is exciting, and we want to do this for you. But we need to also do this with you. So here's what I think. I think that this student ministry is going to really only work if, it, if we work it together, student. Do you hear me? We, we're not doing this just for you, student. We're doing this for your friends. We're doing this for your community. We're doing this for your school. We're doing this because we believe that there are a lot of teenagers in our city that desperately need the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. And so, student. 6th through 12th grade, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, 6th grader. I believe God wants to do incredible things with your life today. And so partner with us in this. It's going to work best if you get involved, if you lead in it, if you get some skin in the game. Bring your friends with you. Tell everybody you know about this and, and come prepared to say, how can God use me in this student ministry? It's for you, student, and we're excited. We can't wait to see what God's going to do. Third thing is this. This weekend on Saturday is Serve Asheville. Serve Asheville, everybody. Come on, somebody. It's very exciting. Thank you, the Huckster family, for being excited about that. Uh, man, I'll tell you what. We love Serve Asheville. It's actually one of our heart things that we get to do at the gathering. It's one of the things that, that really is just a part of our DNA because we believe that, that, when, that the church was created to serve, that our neighborhoods should be better because we're here. And so a couple times a year, we express that collectively through Serve Asheville. Serve Asheville is also a, an incredible opportunity for us to show this city that the church is one church, not a whole bunch of other churches. So 12 churches are going to be partnering together all around our city this Saturday to serve schools, to serve our city, our parks departments, to serve uh, individuals in need, to serve nonprofits that we care about and are connected to. And so I just want to invite you, if, if you haven't signed up yet, it's not too late. Be a part of what God's doing in our city. Be a part of this act. We believe that Christ um, died for us so that we could live a life serving others, so that we could discover our purpose, which is to make a difference in the lives of people around us. So join us in that journey. Join us this weekend as we get out into our community and get our hands dirty for these neighbors that we love so much. Um, Serve Asheville is this weekend. All right, now let's, let's get into our new series today um, titled 90%. Listen, we're a family at the gathering. You'll hear us say it a lot, but we really believe it, man. We, we, we just believe it. We think we go through life together. We go through fun stuff together. We, we talk about hard things together because we're a family. And today I want to talk about something that a lot of families don't talk about enough, and that's money. we got to talk about money, and we have to talk about it. Because money, to reiterate some of the stats in that, 
in that video. They're staggering, aren't they? The number one cause of stress in the United States. The number two cause of divorce in the United States. In the U.S., there is $712 billion of credit card debt. $712 billion, not including houses, not including car loans, not including personal loans, not including business loans, not including any other way that we've managed to figure out how to borrow money, but just credit cards, wasted money, credit card debt, $712 billion. The majority of Americans have less than $25,000 saved for retirement, which is great if you're planning to retire in the year 1935. But if you're going to retire in the next 20 years, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to, it'll, it'll be great for a solid six months of retirement. And then you're going to need more. And all of this has meant one thing, a financial stress epidemic. Financial stress is rampant. It's everywhere. And the Bible has a lot to say about money. Funny fact, the Bible talks about heaven a lot. Did you know this? The Bible talks about heaven all over. In fact, in the Bible, there's 400 individual mentions about heaven and the kingdom of heaven, which is a lot. Except the Bible talks about money and managing money and what, what, what's behind money more than 2,000 times. 2,000 mentions throughout Scripture. I think that's enough for us to comfortably say the church should talk about money. And we get uncomfortable when the church starts to talk about money. There's a, a palpable tension in the room right now as I'm just getting warmed up. And that's because we, we grew up in a culture where a lot of times, anytime the church talks about money, it's in association with receiving the tithe, which means we've got to give our money, what we consider our money, to the church. And we're not comfortable with that. That makes us feel awkward. And so we have a natural resistance to the church talking about money. It's made us a little bit uncomfortable about it. So we titled this series 90% because we don't want to just talk about the 10%. We're going to. But we also want to talk about the 90 as well because I think it's important that we understand that God doesn't just care about the 10%. He cares about every penny that passes through our hands and how we manage it and who we use to serve it, who we use it to serve. So today I want to address specifically the financial stress that we get trapped in and the wrong thinking that we develop about money and the wrong way that we serve money. And then next week I want to pass on some basic practices and biblical principles on how to manage our money and live in abundance financially instead of in scarcity. So my father is a very financially wise man. Unfortunately, he's not here to speak to you today. You've got me. He did his best to teach us about money growing up, taught us all kinds of budgeting principles. I remember in the seventh grade, he tried to teach me how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> I was a seventh grader, need to balance a checkbook. It's like, Dad, I've got $10 and it's all going to Slim Jims, okay? Let's, let's be real, <laughs> you know? And he did his best, but it just didn't take. And so when I was 19 years old and I joined the United States Coast Guard, I made a lot of money my first year in the Coast Guard. I didn't manage well. My first year, I made $18,543, but I spent twice that. 
So really, I was living on $36,000 a year. It was pretty awesome, actually. It was incredible. And I was a mess with money, you guys. I got, I got approved somehow for this credit card. And this is amazing that I got approved for this because actually, before I joined the Coast Guard, when I was 18, I went into a motorcycle dealership and financed a motorcycle 100%. I didn't have a job. I wrote down the job that I had last, and in my mind, I was like, this is okay, because I never actually quit that job, and they never fired me. I just stopped going to work. So technically, I still worked there, right? If they don't fire you, you're not fired, then you work there. And so I put it down on the application, and they gave me a motorcycle, and then my dad got so mad about it, he made me return the motorcycle. And if you're ever wondering if you can return something you've financed at a dealership, the answer is, if your dad is angry enough, always yes. Always yes. And so I, I don't know how I had, I had terrible credit, but I got this $10,000 limit on a credit card. It was awesome. $10,000 of free money. And, and somehow it just got linked to my, uh, my debit card. And so I was pretty smart about it. I never actually used my credit card because that would be unwise. Instead, I just used my debit card all the time and never looked at how much money was in the bank. And, and, and it never overdrafted because it was connected to the credit card. It was great. So I just lived exactly how I wanted to all the time. I went to Outback Steakhouse all the time, right? It was 2006, guys, okay, seven. We, 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 had, we didn't have a, you know, all the great, actually, we probably did have non-chain restaurants. I just didn't know about them yet. I ate a I steak, and I had the cheese fries, and I had the blooming onion every night of the week. I was living large, okay? And, I, and then after that credit card, maxed out and they weren't giving me any more money on it. Good news. They were like, but we'll offer you this one as well. And so I got another credit card and I, I racked that one up until it stopped working one day. And then a, a terrible thing happened. That other credit card stopped working and then the, they wouldn't give me any more. And then the very next week, my payments went from being $25 a month, which was manageable with the credit card, to being $250 a month. And suddenly, I was making $18,000 a year, and I had $700 a month in credit card bills. Things were not going very well for me after that. I became very broke, very, very broke. I got to the point once, I was not following Jesus yet, and um, I was a smoker because I was a sailor, and they kind of just go together. And I, I remember I got down, I had 10 days left in the pay period. 10 days, and I, uh, I had $7. And when I say I had $7, I mean I had $7. I mean, they're, they're, the bank account was zero. I mean, there was no credit cards. I mean, I didn't have any friends that were good enough friends to give me money. And so I just had found $7 in old jacket pockets, okay? And I had this $7 in 10 days, and I thought I could either use this to buy enough ramen noodles to get by for the next 10 days, or it'll buy me two packs of Camel Lights. Well, in my mind, I was like, well, cigarettes are an appetite suppressant, so the smarter thing is to get 40 cigarettes. And that's what I did. I was not smart with money. And then I got married. Or I didn't get married. <laughs> that would not have happened in that season. <laughs> but I gave my life to Jesus, and I started to try to change things. And I, I had this person in my life that was very wise all the time. Her name is Rael. We're married now. And she told me, John Mark, you can't keep paying $700 a month in credit card bills. You've got to pay off some of your debt. And so I said, okay, I guess I'll, I'll live in my truck for the next six months so I can use my rent check to pay off enough bills so I can afford another apartment again. 
And I lived in my truck for six months. Just, it was very comfortable. It was a crew cab truck at least, and so I was able to lean the seat back pretty far. But I made a lot of bad, bad decisions. And then when we got married, we were still paying for them. That's the thing about debt is it only takes a minute to rack up a credit card bill, and it could take a lot longer than that to pay it off. And so I'm coming to you this morning because I've got a lot of financial wisdom and smart decisions under my belt. No, actually, I, I, I want to help you not make some of the mistakes that I've made. And I want to I, I let you know that now, in this season that we're in now, we live in financial abundance. That the stress that I had then and the decisions that we made then are behind us. And I want to talk about the gap between what happened from here to here and some of the biggest changes that I made. Because here's the thing that I remember the most about that season. The crippling pressure. The feeling always at the, at the forefront of my mind. How am I going to live tomorrow? What, where's the money going to come from? What's going to happen when my phone rings again and I know it's a debt collector that I can't pay? What, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my stuff? How am I going to keep going? Maybe this is a little extreme for you. Maybe you've, you've never quite been to that point, but maybe you do know what it feels like to feel financial pressure to feel like it's the only thing you can think about in a season, to, to live paycheck to paycheck. Maybe you know that groaning feeling you get when it's a three-week pay period because it's a longer month. Oh, man, that's the worst. Right? Maybe you know what it feels like to have your phone ring and have some anxiety about who it might be. Maybe you've been frugal your whole life and you've always done well with money. You're one of these people that's naturally good with money, but but you still understand what it feels like to have your thoughts consumed by money, to have your, your, your spirit overwhelmed by the stress that comes from money or the desire for more of it. Maybe you still feel if you just had a little bit more that you'd finally be comfortable. Or you worry about how to take that vacation that you've already said yes to to your family. Or a million other reasons that we allow stress to enter our lives through our finances. And here's what I want to say about it today. I think too often we address a spiritual issue by natural means. I think too often we address a spiritual issue by natural means. Too often we try to find best practices instead of trying to understand the root behind the problem. See, I think too often we try to get a self-help book to fix something that only the good book can. So I believe that financial stress is at its core a spiritual issue. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 because it marks the difference between living in this life and following Jesus and living in this life without him. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. See, I think this is a spiritual issue, and we can't just attack it by natural means. See, I think even good budgeting and wise financial practices, we can still be consumed by the financial stress that is defining our culture. That if we really want to be free from it, we're going to need divine power to demolish these strongholds. 
So let's come after it from a spiritual aspect this morning and talk about what we can do to beat that. In Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 9 through 13, um, Jesus gives us some wisdom on this this morning. And we're going to kick it old school in the new King James Version today. Now, uh, at least it is the new King James Version. I believe this one is named for LeBron James rather than the old King James. He's the new King James. That was a funny joke, and you guys just didn't appreciate it. That one's on you, not on me. It says this, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when it fails, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Okay, let me explain this for a second. Because King James can be a little bit tricky, but I chose it because it's the only translation that we find that uses that word mammon which is what appears in the original text. Um, so unrighteous mammon is the term that Jesus is using here to describe wealth. Now in every other translation in the Bible, they just translate that into money. They just translate unrighteous mammon into money. But I don't think that's a good translation of what Jesus was trying to get across here. In the King James Version, we, we see this word mammon, it's a transliteration meaning there was no uh, English equivalent of the Greek word in the original text. And so they just made kind of an English-sounding word for it and put it in the new Bible. Here, here's why there's no English word for it. It's a name. It's a name. Mammon was the ancient god of riches. Came out of uh, ancient Babylon and then ancient Syrian culture. He was very popular uh, when Jesus was doing his ministry. All the people that he would have been speaking to would have been very familiar with mammon. He had great big fancy temples with marble columns and gold adorned all throughout. And People would pursue mammon. They would pray to mammon when they were trying to get rich. And so I think it's very intentional that Jesus, instead of saying money, which he could have said, he says unrighteous mammon instead. And I think the reason is Jesus wants us to understand that the issue here is not material, it is spiritual. That it is not just the money that becomes the problem, but it is the spirit behind the money. It's the false God that the money represents. See, that's why he says mammon here. So let's talk a little bit more about mammon this morning. Um, in this opening sentence, Jesus is just explaining a parable he's just told of a shrewd manager who uses his money for his own gain. And here he's explaining this by saying, take this thing that has an unrighteous spirit behind it, money, and use it in the name of righteousness. Use it to serve people and bless people. And then when the money inevitably fails you and leaves you, because how many of you know money has no loyalty? Money, mon money, money isn't loyal to you. Money doesn't serve you. Money only serves itself. And so whenever money ultimately fails you like it always does, if you've used it to serve others, then you'll have other people around you to carry you forward to the next season. That's what he's saying here. Let's keep going in verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. We talked about this last week. We, we used this verse and. Um, we talked about the idea that what we do in the small things matters to God. And I'll talk about this more in a few mi minutes, but it's important to remember that that, that that verse, which I think applies to everything, it came in context right here when Jesus was talking about money. 
that Jesus very little, very literally was saying, whatever you do with a little bit of money is what you're going to do with a lot of bit of money. That if you can be trusted with a little bit of money, then you can be trusted with a lot of bit of money. If you can't, you can't. He keeps going. Verse 11. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit you, who will commit to your trust true riches? If you don't manage your money well, how can God trust you to manage things that really matter? Like people, like a calling, like purpose. Verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who is going to give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Everybody serves something. No matter what you believe, no matter what background you have spiritually, the reality is you were created to serve. You were created with a purpose to serve your God. And even if you don't serve Him because that's in your creation, you will always serve something. Whether it's uh, money or success or pride or fear or mammon. But you can only serve one master. And here he's saying it's either God or mammon, this false God. You either submit your money to God or you submit it to mammon. I fear that many of us have fallen victim to mammon, have believed the lies that he's been feeding culture for thousands of years. Here's three of the lies that I believe come from mammon. First is this. If I get enough, I will feel secure. If I get enough, I will feel secure. Here's a truth I've discovered. The more stuff a person has, the more stuff a person wants. The more we have, the more we want. Solomon, the great king of Israel, called the richest king who's ever lived by historians, discovered this as well. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, it says this. Those who love money will never have enough. Those who love money will never have enough. Written 3,000 years ago. Those who, who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And we know this principle. We know that, that it's meaningless, but we still act like it's going to bring us security, like it's going to bring us comfort, like it's going to be the thing that helps us to fall asleep a little bit easier at night. We think we'll be less stressed if we could just work a few more hours. Or, or we think that if we could get that promotion, that our emotional troubles will just drift away. It keeps going. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Amen. That's good. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, whether they get rich or not. If they have purpose, they sleep well. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. You know, Forbes did a study in 2016. This is unbelievable to me. They did a study in 2016 of a random selection of people, and they studied five different income categories, five income categories, and they asked each of them how much money they thought they would need to be financially secure, like what they considered to be their goal that they would be, be able to be comfortable and meet financial security at. Do you know what they found? 
in all five categories, every single one of them, the amount that they said they needed to be financially secure was at least double what they had. Every single category. For the folks that they interviewed that, that, that made $45,000 a year annually, they said that if they had $90,000 a year annually, they would be financially secure. For the folks that had $100,000 a year annually, they said that they needed $200,000 a year to be financially secure. Here's my favorite one. For the folks that made $1 million in annual income, do you want to know what they said? $1 million in annual income. They said in order to feel financially secure, they would need $4.35 million in annual income. Everybody hates a millionaire, right? Until you get to be one, right? $4.35 million. Here's, here's what I think that tells me. Those who love money will never have enough. And Solomon knew it 3,000 years ago. Those who love money will never have enough. See, no matter what we think we're prepared for, we can't prepare for everything. No matter how much we think gives us security, when we get to that place, there's going to be a greater level of security that mammon wants to put in front of us. No matter who, uh, how much money we have, we will always, when we serve mammon, pursue more and be driven by the stress that pushes us in that direction. Sometimes we just need to be reminded to be content, to take inventory of what we have and discover that it's not our things or our stuff that gives us satisfaction or security, and so we don't need to keep pursuing more. See, I, I think it's not bad to have stuff. It's just bad when your stuff has you. I think it's okay to have a savings account, and it's okay to have money put aside, but if that's where you're defining security, if that's how you're, you're saying that this will make me comfortable, this will make me sleep better at night, this, will, this, is, this much is how much I need to be prepared for a rainy day, you will never be satisfied. Because no matter what you do, you can't prepare enough. If you put aside $1,000 because last winter your hot water heater exploded everywhere and that's how much it costs to replace, next winter your furnace is going to go out and it'll be $6,000. And again, not quite enough. And then if you replace the furnace and now you've managed somehow to save up $6,000 because you worked late nights and weekends instead of being with your family and now you've got this financial security, the next thing they're going to discover is a termite infestation, which is going to cost you $10,000 to fix. You see, you can't prepare for everything. Financial security is an illusion. You can't be secure in unrighteous mammon. It's time to slay that spirit. Number two is this. I am what I have. Here's his other great lie. And this one is so deep in our American culture. I am what I have. The spirit of mammon wants us to define ourselves based on our possessions, based on our economical class. This is rampant here in the United States because we, we have a phrase for it, keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses being the proverbial people who are always one step ahead of you financially, one step ahead of you economically, one step ahead of you in status, and the constant pursuit of that place, which is always just moving one step in front. It's time to stop letting this spirit of mammon define us by how much we have or what kind of car we drive, 
or what kind of clothes we wear, or how big our house is, or what trendy neighborhood it's in. When we believe this lie, it leads us to make stupid decisions with our money. Like pile on debt to buy a new car because all of our friends have a new car, and ours is the oldest amongst the bunch. Or to pile on debt to take a vacation because everyone else on Instagram is going to the Bahamas, and by goodness, it's our turn, you know? <laughs> or to buy a house that is bigger than we can afford because we're adults and we have three kids and we need a thousand square foot between us and those kids. Please, somebody. It's time to define yourself based on who God says you are, not who mammon says you are. If I've got laminate or wood floors, I still know who I am because I am who God says I am. If I've got Air Jordans or if I've got Skechers from Walmart, I still know who I am. If I drive a Ford or a Lexus, it doesn't matter. If, if I buy my shirt from Banana Republic or Target, come on, Morona, it doesn't matter. I know who I am. I know what my identity is in Jesus. I know who He says I am. And who He says I am does not change based upon the car that I drive, the clothes that I wear, the house that I live in, the number in my bank account. He says that I am, re that I am created with a purpose for a purpose that I am redeemed, that I am made new. My riches are in heaven, and it doesn't matter what possessions I acquire here on earth because God defines me the same. I am created, I am called, and I am His, and this is where I will define my identity, not in my possessions. We need to slay the spirit of mammon and who He says we are. Third lie is this. If I have more, I will be happy. There's a difference between feeling secure and feeling happy. Some of us believe that if we pursue more money that we'll have a comfort from it, a level of security from it, a wall built around us to protect us from whatever might happen. And some of us genuinely believe that if we get more money, we'll be a happier person. And we got a saying about this too, um, even a great Beatles song, money can't buy me love, money can't buy me happiness. And everyone's heard it. And we'll quote it from time to time, but hardly anybody lives like they believe it. We let our financial stress drive us to this belief that if we can get ahead and get more, we won't be stressed about it anymore. And we'll finally just be happy. We'll be like Scrooge McDuck diving into a pile of gold, swimming around. You'd get a concussion if you tried that in real life. I'm just letting you know. DuckTales, I see you. Listen, I, I'm guilty of this. This one, this one is, is one of the struggles I have. Uh, think, think, not diving into gold, but, but thinking that money will make me happy. And here's, here's how. I, I've got like this, this, this thing for Jeeps. And, I, and I hear, I just, I've had to limit myself because it's bad. Because this has become a, a, a problem in my spiritual life. Because I've, I've had to limit the amount of time I spend looking at Jeeps. I genuinely believe I will look at a Jeep Wagoneer on the internet. And I, and I just get this whole picture. Like I can just see the whole thing. I'm just driving it. I see the picture, and I'm just driving it on a beautiful country road, fall leaves blowing in the wind behind the car. I've got long hair like Fabio, and it's just blowing in the wind. My whole family's in the car, and everybody's just laughing and having a good time. The dog's in the, pat, in the back, tongue hanging out, and we're just having the best time ever because of this Jeep Wagoneer. Wood panels are looking great. And I just believe it. I don't know. It's in my head. Except here's what I know. I bought four of these things because of this illusion. And every single one of them has made me angrier than the last one. 
They don't work. Here's a spoiler alert with old cars. They break. They're old, okay? But I believe somehow in my heart, this thing will make me happy. The Wagoneer will not make me happy. And I still believe it. I still believe it. We pursue this false happiness with vigor. We sacrifice time with our kids to buy more stuff that won't make them happy and won't make us happy. We work ourselves to the bone to get more money, to buy more things, to improve our station in life, thinking that will bring us some kind of joy or peace or end to this financial stress. But the problem is the natural physical aspect of money and provision. The problem is spiritual. And it's the way we think about this thing called money. It's not the natural. It's the way we serve the unrighteous spirit of mammon instead of making him serve us and our purpose. So today I want to encourage you to break this spirit of mammon and his control over your life. Decide to serve God, not mammon. Decide to use the 90% to use your portion to live in abundance rather than in scarcity. And live your life free of the financial stress that plagues our culture. That's God's dream for you. Here's two simple ways to start doing that today. And then next week, we'll spend the whole message talking through some basic principles of margin and budget to live in abundance instead of scarcity. So I'm going to touch on it today and we'll really unpack it next week. First thing we need to do is this. Honor God with your finances. Honor God with your finances. Like Jesus says, use your finances to serve God instead of mammon and you will get the peace that comes from God instead of the longing that comes from mammon. Our finances, how we manage them, what we do with our money, how we think about money, all of it matters to God. I mean, there's a reason that Jesus uses money in Luke chapter 16, 10, when he says, if I can trust you with a little bit, then I can trust you with a lot. If I can't trust you with a little bit, I can't trust you with a lot. There's a reason he's using money as the barometer here. Because if you can be trusted with a little bit of money, then you can be trusted with a lot of something else. How we manage our money matters to God. If you're generous, if you don't steward your money well when you have a little bit, if you're not generous when you have a little bit, if you can't control your spending when you have a little bit, you definitely won't control it when you have a lot. You know, this is obvious if you study culture and the things that happen, this principle. If you look at uh, folks that win the lottery and come into a lot of money all at once, or you even look at some professional athletes who never had to manage their money, who were irresponsible students, but gifted athletes, and all of a sudden they're given million-dollar contracts, and they spend it poorly, just like they spend it poorly when they had no money, and then when their contracts expire, they go bankrupt shortly afterwards. Or these folks that win a $250 million-dollar lottery, and, and then they're broke just a few years later because they did not know how to manage their money. What you do with a little bit, you would do with a lot. And how generous you are with a little bit is how generous you'll be with a lot, and so on, so forth. It's, 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 it's important to God how we manage our money at every level. You can have a lot of money, and you can be poor at the same time. Did you know that? Proverbs chapter 28, 22, it says, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So we can break the unrighteous spirit of mammon's control over our financial outlook by choosing instead to honor God with our finances. 
And we don't have to be spiritually poor. We can be spiritually wealthy even if we're physically poor. That means practice biblical financial wisdom. And we'll talk through the practical side of that next week, like don't get into credit card debt. That's 101. Don't get into credit card debt or any debt if you can help it. Proverbs 22.7 says the borrower is slave to the lender, and I only am going to be a slave to Jesus Christ and what he's doing and done for me, not some lender, not some chase credit card company or whoever else wants to blow up my phone 30 times a day because congratulations, I've qualified. I don't want to qualify. I don't want your money anymore. Please let me be free. Okay, that was venting. I got into some venting there for a minute, (laughs) but but they just won't stop. And make a budget and live by it. Here's some biblical financial practices. Don't get into too much debt. Make a budget and live by it. Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. In other words, if you make a plan, you can live in abundance. If you don't know what you're spending, you will be poor. Make a financial plan. Make a plan to get out of debt. Make a plan to bless others. Make a plan for every penny that passes through your fingers, through a budget. If you don't know where your money is or where it is going, then you are on your way to poverty. Honor God by practicing wisdom. And then honor God with generosity. Christians should be the most generous people on the planet. The most generous people on the planet. Listen, nobody should give a bigger tip than Christians. I used to go to this Mexican restaurant every Sunday after church, and I also went there two or three times during the week as well. It was a problem. And I I remember on Sundays, I had built a good relationship with one of the waiters there, Alejandro, and I remember on Sundays, he had a markedly uh, darker demeanor than the rest of the week. So I just asked him about it one day. I said, hey, Alejandro, why why are you so kind of upset on Sundays when I come in here? Like, shouldn't you be more excited? Like, isn't this one of your big business days? Because we know Southern people come out of church and into a Mexican restaurant. This is what happens, you know? If you need proof of this, go to El Que Paso today after service. You'll have to wait an hour to sit down. I don't know why. It's just what people do. And so anyways, I asked him that, and you know what he said? He said, yeah, it's the most people, but I make the least in tips on Sunday because church people don't tip. Mm. That upsets me. Because as followers of Jesus, we should be the most generous people on the planet. We should tip bigger than anybody else in any room. And you know what? If the grace of Jesus has forgiven my giant mistakes, then your tip shouldn't go down for poor service. You don't have to agree with me on that. That's an opinion. (laughs) But I think you should be generous 100% of the time. And I think you should be the most generous person in any room. I think when a need arises in our community, we should be fighting over who gets to meet it. I think if the church and if if Christians would take Jesus' teachings on generosity seriously, our government wouldn't have to provide welfare because the church would do it. See, I think you can honor God with your generosity. And when you do that, when you give first, when it becomes the way you lead with your finances, you would break this unrighteous spirit of mammon. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'd rather my money first when I lead. I'd rather my money go to people and go to God because I would rather my heart be with people and with God than with my utility bill or my cable bill or my car payment or a new pair of shoes or Oreo cookies or whatever it is I'm spending all my money on that week. And when you lead with generosity, that is the direction your heart will go in. 
You know, interesting thing. It, it talks about your treasure. And you know, you know what God considers treasure? It's not gold. It's not gold. God doesn't, when he talks about treasure and all the treasures he wants to give you, he's not talking about gold. Gold is asphalt to God. He paves the streets with it. The Bible says the streets are paved with gold in heaven. It's just asphalt to him. The treasure is the people. Give where you want your treasure to be. It also says this in Acts chapter uh, 20, verse 35, you will not likely go wrong here if you keep remembering that our master said you're far happier giving than getting. You will find joy in generosity once you learn to think about it the right way and stop serving the spirit of mammon. Honor God with your spending. Don't spend more money than you make, and you'll be less stressed about how much you've spent. We'll talk more about all this next week. This next week is all going to be about these biblical principles on wisdom over our finances. Um, and so here's the last thing that I'll leave you with today uh, in a way that we can break the spirit of mammon's power over our lives, that we can correct our thinking about money, an important thing that we can do. Um, some of you have already figured out where I'm going, and you're making your ways to the exits. Number two is this, return the tithe. Return the tithe. Return. As in it wasn't yours to begin with as in everything that you've got has been given to you, and we honor God by returning 10%. It's the way that it's been done since the dawn of creation. And the tithe is a hot topic. It's a difficult subject. We live in a culture trained to challenge the status quo. My generation is a generation known for challenging authority and the way things have always been done. And This is an area of the church under constant scrutiny for a lot of reasons. For one, trust has been broken. I've seen it. I've felt it. We've seen headlines of the church mismanaging our money, and we wonder if we can trust them with it. Are we giving our tithe to God or to flawed men? And here's my answer to that. God's called us to return 10% of everything we have to him. And I believe it's through the church. Because Jesus' plan to change the world is the church. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And when we give our 10% to the church, we're not just giving to meet physical needs, which is important. And that's, that's where our generosity comes in. We give to meet people's physical needs. But when we give our 10% through the church, like the Bible calls us to do, we're giving to meet spiritual needs. Physical needs are important. Spiritual needs are internal. Physical needs are important. Spiritual needs are eternal. Eternal. And the church takes our 10%, and if they're managing it well, if the church you're giving to manages that money well, they're not just meeting spiritual needs, they're also meeting physical needs, and they're using your 10% and multiplying it to make a far greater impact than it ever could just on your own. I believe it matters. I believe it's what Scripture calls us to. I believe it's the model we see throughout it. And I believe that the local church is desperately needed today more than ever before. And that means that this call to give of what we've been given to the church is more important than it ever has been before. And so I understand that sometimes it's hard to have, have trust with the church. I get that. I get that. But I believe that if you trust the church to develop you spiritually, you need to trust the church with your tithe. That if you can't trust the church with your tithe, you can't trust them to develop you and move you closer to God. And so, if that is the case, then I would encourage you to find another church where you can trust them with your tithe. Because I believe it's that important. It's that important in my life. It's that important for me, for my family. It's that important for this church and the way that we lead. 
with our finances. I did not always tithe. My dad tried to teach me that one. Again, I didn't listen at all. I was like, Dad, I see that you've given me $10 here. You want me to give $1 to the church. I would posit you this. I could spend that $1 on sweet tarts and everybody wins. (laughs) But when I got married, my wife immediately was like, Day one of marriage, she was like, let's look at our finances. And I was like, ooh, boy, (laughs) okay, let's, that'll be fun. (laughs) She said, how come you haven't ever given any money to the church? And I said, well, it's my money. Why would I do that? You know, they're fine. They're fine. Church is fine. And um, she was not okay with that. (laughs) My wife has given tithe, 10% to the church, with every penny that has passed through her fingers since she was five years old. She's grown up believing this principle is important, that it matters, and it was never even a question in her mind that, it, that, she, would feel, uh, every, that she would feel reward, that she would feel blessing, that she would feel obedience in doing it. She's always done it, never any question. So when we got married, she said I would start doing it, and I said, yes, ma'am. And we didn't start with 3% or 5%. We started with 10%, and it was hard. It was very hard, actually. We were making $30,000 a year, two people living on that, you know, in a house. It was, it was expensive. I don't know. It was hard. It was hard to go from not doing that to living on 90% of our income, but we did it. And I believe that in my life, before being in ministry, outside of ministry, and now in ministry still, that my life and my family are very blessed because we obey the principle of the tithe. I believe that, that uh, financial stress has not, we have had financial stress because mammon will always attack you. But I believe that because of our obedience in the tithe, we've had far less than most people encounter. I believe we've had far greater provision. I believe we've seen a lot more blessing that we didn't expect or ask for or even pray for because we've been obedient with the tithe. And I want you to experience this as well. So I'm not coming after you with this, but I just feel like as, as your pastor and as somebody that cares about you, that I need, you to, I, need you to, I need you to experience what I experience. We believe this with our church. In fact, we, this month, we just gave $4,000 to church planting. That's our tithe. We believe that our tithe as the church matters and that we give our tithe to the local church because the local church is the hope of the world. So each month, 10% of everything that we bring in, we give to church planning. We gave $4,000 to brand new life-giving churches in our nation, in our country, because we believe this principle. And we give above that and beyond that because the church should be giving all the time. And so we give anything that we give to our community, to people in need, all of it, we do that, but it all comes above and beyond our tithes and offerings because our tithe matters. It's important to us. Some people argue that the tithe is a part of the law that was fulfilled when Jesus came. And I understand this argument. And I, and I understand it. Uh, that, that, that they're, they're saying that in the same way we can eat pork now, that we also aren't held to the tithe anymore. But here's why I don't think that's the case. Because the tithe exists outside of the law. The tithe precedes the law. The law was given to the people around 3,500 to 4,000 years ago. And the tithe first appears in Scripture 1,000 years before that. And we see this principle of giving the first fruits of our labor to God in the very first sons of Adam. And so this is a principle that has existed ever since the relationship between God and man, all the way back to creation. It's confirmed in the New Testament 
both by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, and, and Paul talks about percentage giving in 1 Corinthians 16 too. I really do think it's biblical. It still matters just the same as it did then. It matters today. And I want you to experience it. Here's one of my favorite passages. Matthew, or Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I think this is one of the best passages about tithing and about returning it to God. It says this, I, the Lord, do not change. Isn't that, isn't that a powerful way to start a prophecy? Isn't that a powerful way for God to make a statement? Do you need to be reminded that God doesn't change? Do you ever feel like maybe he's, he's going to turn his heart to you even though you've heard us say, you know, outside of money that, that God is always there you, that he's with you, that he's for you. You think, not me, it couldn't be me. God says, I don't change. I don't change. I'm good in the beginning. I'm good in the end. I am God. He does not change. His name is Yahweh, which means I am, which means he does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. His practices can change, but who he is does not. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Men have always had trouble keeping the law. And he says, return to me, and I will return to you. You know what I love about God? You know what I love about him? He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He doesn't keep a, 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 he doesn't keep a line item of debt like Chase does. I'll tell you what, they do. God doesn't do that. God says no matter how far you've gone, financially, in your life, relationally, physically, it doesn't matter. No matter how far you've gone, if you return to me, I return to you. It means you don't have to, you don't have to keep a, a big list of all the things that you've done wrong and, and go bound one by one until, until everything's okay. No, just return to me. Just return to me and I'll return to you. Return to me and I'll return to you. If you've lived your life serving this unrighteous spirit of mammon instead of serving God with your money, you don't have to go back and make it all right. Just return to me and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? How? How do we return, God? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. But bring the whole tithe, the whole tithe, into the storehouse that there may be food in the house and test me in this says the Lord Almighty do you know how many times in all of scripture in thousands of years of authorship and in every inspired word from the Holy Spirit that appears in these pages do you know how many times God asks us to test him exactly one only here in all of time and creation, in all of the history of God's relationship with man, only once has he dared us to test him. And it is in this area of our finances. It is only right here in this principle of the tithe that God has said, test me in this. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. Here's what you need to see here. He doesn't say he's going to pour open the floodgates of the bank because it's not talking about you getting rich. 
It's not saying if you tithe, you'll be rich tomorrow. You'll have more to give. You'll have more money. That's not what God says. God says he's going to open up the floodgates of heaven so that you can have actual blessing on your life. The things that only God can give you. Fulfillment, joy, peace, satisfaction, purpose, meaning. All the things that he's got ready for you in the storehouse. All the things he wants to give you. And you just got to return it to him. You just got to serve him with your money first. And God says, I will throw open the floodgates. And you will have blessings beyond you could ever imagine. Just test me in this. Just try it out. I talked to a woman after first service. She came up to me with tears in her eyes. And it's very common when you do a tithing message for people to come up to you crying afterwards. It happens all the time. For different reasons, usually. And, um, and she came up to me crying. And she said, you know what? It, it's, it's interesting. Ten years ago today, I was not a believer. And a pastor preached this passage. And he said, test me in this. And I just thought, test me in this? Okay, fine, God, I will. And I started tithing before I was following Jesus. And so much blessing. And so much of his goodness. And so much of his provision spiritually entered in my life. That's why I'm a follower of Jesus today. It's been 10 years, and here we are. Test him in this. Just test him in this. See what happens. Return the tithe. Return the tithe, and I promise you, the blessings are waiting for you. He says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. That in today's culture, that could say, I will make your crappy old Ford drive forever. I, I will make that rusty hot water heater hold its water and keep it hot. He says, I want to provide for you. I want to be there for you. If you would let me, test me in this, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God wants to bless you. God wants you to break the spirit of mammon's control over your life. Break the unrighteous spirits. These unrighteous, the, the, these wrong thinkings we've had about money. These wrong people we serve with money. These wrong attitudes towards money. Let's reset the whole thing. Let's reset it right here today. Let's point it in the right direction. And let's let the God of creation also be the God of our bank account. And let's find out what happens in our life if we would just do that. If we would just trust him with that. I want to invite you to do that this morning. I believe God has more for you financially. I believe he cares about what we do with the whole 100%. Next week, come back. And we'll talk about how you can live in abundance instead of scarcity with the rest. This week, I just want to encourage you to honor God with your money. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are for what you're doing in us, God, for the purpose you put us here for, God, for the way you've made us, Father. God, I just ask that you would take this, this, this piece of our lives that can control so much of our, our energy and our thoughts and our time, Father, and God, that you would just, that you would correct our thinking. Father, we make a commitment today to submit this money to you, to use it to serve you, Father God, that something intended for an unrighteous purpose would be righteous in your eyes, God, that we would serve you with our money. 
and that you would take us and, and, and put us in a place where we're not like the rest of the world. We're not like the rest of our culture, that we wouldn't be dominated by financial stress, that we wouldn't be thinking about it, that we wouldn't be obsessed with it, but God, we would only use it to do the thing we were put on this earth to do, and that is to glorify you and serve others. We love you. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.